Well, thank you, Chris, for the scripture reading. Quick side note, uh, if you don't know, Chris is one of our missionaries who is currently uh, raising support to serve the gospel in the least of these, in Tacloban, which is in the Philippines. She's a trained special education uh, spe- uh, teacher, and, and she's using her gifts in, in such a way to reach families which I would consider are the, the least reached people groups there in the Philippines. They're uh, families of children with special needs who are oftentimes overlooked, and yet God has given Chris a compassionate heart to not only uh, teach these children in a way that they need to be taught, but to have a, a deep understanding for what the families are going through. And so, uh, I don't know about you, but I know I love hearing about what God is doing in and through her, and I hope that you want to hear more from her. I know that she is 100% open to speaking with anyone who would like to hear more about uh, what God is doing in her ministry and how he's equipping her. And so feel free to email her. Her email address is chrisc at converge.org. And I'm sure she'd love to connect with you and, and tell you more about uh, how God is using her in her ministry. You know, as we think about the changing seasons and we look out our windows and we, we feel the crisp coolness in the evening and the leaves falling off the trees, uh, it reminds us of my favorite season which is fall. I love the fall. I love that crisp uh, smell in the air, the coolness of the, uh, of the air outside, the, the chance to make uh, campfires in the evening and and relax outside and not still be sweating and, and all that. I love the fall. It just, it's filled with such nostalgia for me. But, but think about this. The fall is also a time that's characterized by, by things dying. Leaves are dying and falling off the trees. Our lawns, they stop growing as frequently as they have. You, you no longer have to mow your lawn twice a week. Maybe you mow it once a week. Maybe you don't even mow it every week. But you know, even there, we, we get this sense, this, uh, this smell of death, right? It's kind of weird to say it like that, but it's true. Uh, the, the evenings get darker sooner. Our days feel like they're getting shorter and shorter. Again, it's almost like this symbolism that, 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 that there's death around the corner, right? But think about this, without, without having the fall, without celebrating what the fall is and, and, and what it brings, we would not have the opportunity to celebrate what the, what the spring brings us as well, the new life that springs forth uh, in, in April and May and, and celebrate the, the new life that characterizes spring for us. See, in the passage that we're in this morning in John chapter 12, Jesus teaches us something that, that I think is very difficult for us to wrap our minds around and to think about. And so I want to encourage you to stay with me this morning because it, it may feel difficult at times, but it's valuable for us to think on this and consider Jesus' words. In particular, Jesus calls us to understand something about life. In particular, it's that the life we truly long for can only be achieved, can only be found, can only be received through death. To be clear, the offer for life from God is for everyone. God loves the world. God loved the world and sent his only son. But that offer for life is for everyone, not just for an elite few. See, in their relationship with God, Israel's understanding had always been that they were a unique people. In relationship to God. They were a holy people, a a people set apart from the various nations that surrounded them 
in the ancient Near East. Moses reminds them of this in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Listen to what he says in, in verse 2. That, that they were a people holy to the Lord. And the Lord had chosen them to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. That's in Deuteronomy 14 too. But, but the people of God have always been a people who are identified by their faith and not necessarily the family that they were born into, not necessarily the ethnicity that they were born into, right? We, we read that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 14 too and we think, well, all you have to do is be a member of the nation of Israel and you're good. But that's never been the case, right? The people of God have always been a people who are identified by their faith in God, their relationship of faith in God as he led them throughout the wilderness and into the promised land. If you look back at some of the people of our Bibles, we have Rahab, who was a prostitute, and, and, and Ruth, who was born a Moabite. Both of these women are held up as women of faith who have played an important role in the history of the people of God. And yet neither of these women were born into the nation of Israel. Neither of them were ethnic Israelites. So I think this is important for us to keep in mind today when we think about the church, when we think about the people of God today. So I think our, our brokenness and our sin nature makes it seem so natural and comfortable for us to surround people who look like us, who, who sound like us, who, who, who act like us, and who value or think like us, who, who value the same things we do and think like us. Sorry, But the kingdom of God is, is overflowing with different. It's overflowing with people who are looking different, who think different, who speak differently, who, who have different passions and desires. See, the picture we're given in the Bible is of a family made up of people who come from different languages and tribes and nations, who, who come from different cultures and backgrounds, but all have one thing in common. Their lives are centered around Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to this earth to live, die, and rise again to new life that we might have life in Him. So numerous times this year, we, we've looked at the passages in Paul's writings about what the church is and what it means and, and how it functions. We, we've looked at how Paul's described the church as a body made up of different body parts that look different from one another, that serve different functions, but they all are part of one body. See, I think at times Jesus was, was speaking about this, but the, the, the time that Jesus was speaking about this, it wasn't necessarily the understanding of his people. When we, when we come alongside this story in the Gospel of John in chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and, and, and he's explaining to them, listen, there's something different here than I think you're understanding. See, there was actually this sense of division that there was Jew and Gentile. There was male and female. There was slaves and there were free. There was this division among the people. But Jesus was saying, that's not my kingdom. That's not my plan. That's not my mission. In fact, my mission is to reunite those people as one. See, we see this division both in gender and the ethnicity in John chapter 4, when, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman by the well, right? And, and she was shocked that Jesus asked her for a drink of water. Remember what she said? 
She said, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Not only do they have this division between Jew and Samaritan, but they also have this division between male and female. Here in John chapter 12, John signals to his readers, signals to the audience, that there's something very unique in history happening here through Jesus' ministry. Look again at uh, the first few verses in our passage in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 22. John records this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, we don't know all about what happened after they told Jesus in terms of did these Greek God worshipers get to see and meet Jesus and spend time with him? We don't know. Why did they go and talk to uh, Philip and, and Andrew? Well, we're not really sure. I both know that uh, we do know that Philip and Andrew are both Greek names, and so maybe they felt comfortable to go to them. But, but that's not John's point in the passage. See, John doesn't tell us the, the, the story about the Greek, uh, the, sorry, the Gentile um, God-fearers to, to tell us more about them, but to explain something about Jesus and to explain Jesus' purpose in coming to this earth. So I believe his purpose, John's purpose in including their request uh, up to this point is, is to point to the reason why Jesus is about to predict his death. The time had come for the Gentiles to be included into the family of God in a formal way. To, to, to not be seen as, as uh, people who are less than or denigrate them because they come from a different culture, but for Jesus to make a way for them to join the fold of his people. See, John uses the Gentiles' request like a, like a bookend whose purpose is to hold up the books on the bookshelf to hold up the books that are in the middle there of the shelf, knowing that on the other side of the bookshelf, there's another bookend, which is also doing its part to hold up the books in the middle of the bookshelf. See, if you were to flip over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, you'd read this other bookend, this other story from the the Bible that holds up this very important uh, passage in John chapter 12, which talks about the upcoming death of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus on the cross. See, there in John, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 10, there's this seemingly strange story that's told about Simon Peter. See, what Luke tells us about Simon Peter is that he gets hungry and goes up to the roof to wait while the food is being prepared. Already, he's a man after my own heart. He's a man who's hungry, right? But, but, but what we learn about Peter from Luke in Acts chapter 10 is that while he's hungry and he's up on the roof waiting, he falls into this trance. He, he, he falls asleep and has this dream. And in this dream, there's this strange thing that happens. Listen to what we can read in Acts chapter 10, starting in verses 13 to 16. And there came a voice to him. There came a voice to Peter. The voice said this, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. See, what had happened was there was this sheet lowering down from heaven, and all in this sheet are things that had been deemed unclean and and common to the people of Israel, things that they had been commanded not to eat of. But Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, 
What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and, and, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, so, so what's going on here, right? Because, because this seems very strange and, and really needs to be, uh, we need a translator to help us understand, right? See, the law that Moses had given to the Israelites in the wilderness was meant to keep them clean, to, meet, to keep them holy, to keep them set apart from the nations that surrounded them so that they would be a nation set apart for God as God's people. They would be known as worshipers of the God of all creation and not people who blended in with the nations around them, uh, taking up the practices of the nations around them. They would be a people who were set apart. And so the law that God gave Moses to, to give to the Israelites was a law that was meant to keep them clean. And part of that was determining what foods they ate and the practices they kept. And so if you had read the entirety of Acts chapter 10, you would come to understand that God was calling P Peter to not see Gentiles, to not see non-Jewish people as being unclean, but being objects of God's love that need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, that, that God had sent his son Jesus into the earth, uh, to the earth to, to seek and to save the lost. And the Gentiles were part of those people, right? So no longer were the Gentiles to be denigrated or, or to be treated poorly or seen as, uh, as less than, but they were objects of God's love and mercy and, and recipients of this good news of Jesus. You and I, you and I are, are, are these Gentiles. You and I are the, these other sheep that, John, uh, that Jesus spoke about in John chapter 10, where Jesus said this in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. Right? This, this bookend in Acts chapter 10 is basically saying that, that this is how God is deeming the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of this world, that, that they can become members of the, the flock that Jesus is the shepherd of. Right? So we have this bookend in Acts chapter 10 that that declares that Gentiles are not unclean. What God has cleansed, do not deem unclean. What God has said, these people are worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ, do not deem them being unworthy recipients of this good news. But it's always been something for us to understand here, that Jesus' plan all along included the Gentiles in bringing them to be a part of the family of God. So, what are we to make of these two bookends? And, and what are these two bookends holding up? Right? What book is the story of the Gentiles wanting to meet Jesus in John chapter 12 pointing forward to? And what, what, what story is the, the, chap, the, the passage in Acts chapter 10 pointing backwards to? What made these Gentiles clean? What, 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 what took them from this place of being unclean and common to being uncommon and clean in the eyes of God. Well, I think both these bookends point to the death and resurrection of Christ, the glorification of Christ, the, the very thing that Jesus talks about next in our passage in John chapter 12. Jesus answers Philip and Andrew in verse 23, and he says this. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
in a sense, John has taken this request of the Gentiles to signal, to, 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 sorry, Jesus has taken this request of the Gentiles in John chapter 12 to signal the purpose for which he is to be glorified. That, that this interaction between the, the Gentile God-fearers and Philip and Andrew points forward to the reason, the purpose for which Jesus is to be glorified. And, and, and Jesus hears this request and he says, the hour has come. It has arrived. It's time for me to do what I've come here to do. See, this is not the first time that Jesus has talked about this hour, right? In John chapter 2, when Jesus' mother asks him to help out at the wedding when they run out of wine, Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. He says, the reason for which I'm here has not yet arrived. In John chapter 4, Jesus told the Samaritans, the, I'm sorry, the Samaritan woman who, who uh, he met at the well uh, of this coming hour when Jews and Gentiles will worship the Father together in spirit and in truth. John chapter 7, there's a group, of, there's a crowd of people that want to arrest Jesus because they, they take umbrage with something that he had said and, and yet he escapes their grip because as John tells us, his hour has not yet come. And then in John 8, a similar crowd, the crowd of Jewish rulers in the temple, they want to arrest Jesus, but again, his hour has not yet come. And so he escapes yet again the grip of their desire to arrest him. And then now we have here in John chapter 12, a group of Gentile Greek God-fearers who want to meet Jesus. And so Jesus declares, it has arrived. My time has come. See, we've been waiting for the arrival of this hour. John has been awaiting the arrival for this hour, much like a, a, a pregnant mother awaits the arrival, the birth of her child. I both loved and hated when Tara was pregnant with our children. I loved the idea that we had this expectation that, that I was going to be a father, that my child was going to come. But I hated the fact that I had to wait as long as I did. As each month came by and we would go to our, the doctor's appointment, I couldn't wait to find out something new. But, but oftentimes, those appointments really just gave me the news to say, yeah, everything's okay and it's going to be another month. It's going to be another a few months actually, right? See, I, I love the news that we were expecting, but I hated waiting. So I couldn't wait to, to, to hear that my child had arrived. I couldn't wait to, to hold them, to, to meet them face to face. I had to deal with the disappointment at every appointment, at every, yeah, every appointment with the doctor that the hour had not yet come. The hour for our baby's arrival was not yet here. But as that day drew near, my joy was overflowing with excitement, even while Tara was filled with dread, right? For Tara, she knew of the pain that she would have to endure before she welcomed her child into this world. And so in the same way that Tara courageously endured the pain of childbirth and brought our three beautiful kids into the world, so it was for Jesus, that, that though he would wish that his cup would be passed from him, Though he wished that the Father would find some other way for, the, for God's mission to seek and to save the lost would, would, would be realized, he wouldn't have to endure the pain and humiliation of the cross without knowing that his suffering might end in life. 
right? There, there's a sense that, that Jesus wished for this cup to be passed from him, but he was lovingly obedient to the Father and lovingly obedient to the Father so that we might experience life. He knew the pain and suffering he had to endure, but he also knew that on the other side of that pain and suffering was life. And so for Jesus, the labor pains had begun. His hour had come. The hour of his glorification. Now, this is a fancy way of really just saying that the time appointed for Jesus' death and resurrection and glorification had arrived. Right? This would be the greatest miracle. Up to now, the miracles that Jesus had been performing were building in anticipation, building and revealing the greatness of his power. The most recent miracle he had performed was one where he raised Lazarus from death to life. But the difference here is that Lazarus died again. History tells us that, that, that Lazarus was brought back to life, but his body would fail him again and, and, and he would die again. But this was not so with Jesus. Because his glorification was not just his resurrection to life, but his exaltation to sit at the right hand of the Father. There was a sense that his glorified body was not a body that would die again, but would live eternally. And what's so amazing about that is that because of his glorified body to eternal, eternal life, he was able to extend that power of life to you and to I. That, that we would be raised to this eternal life. See, the, the amazement of this miracle that Jesus performs is not just to show that he has power over death, but that he has the power to give life in his eternally existent body of life. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I don't know many people who would see death as a victory, right? I don't know many people who would see death as a moment of glory in their world, but instead see death as, as a moment of defeat, as like the end, right? In the economy of this world, death is the end of things. It's our last chance to do something great and productive. The mantra for mankind is live your life to its fullest and make the most of life while you have it. But but that's not necessarily true within the kingdom of God, right? There's this poem which I think depicts our, our human view of life and death pretty well. It's called The Dash, and it's written by Linda Ellis. And it articulates this worldview of life and death pretty well. There, there's a couple, let me read a couple of lines for us. It's, it's a beautiful poem, and I think it just falls short of understanding the true power of death within the kingdom of God. So the opening lines of the poem say something like this. I read of a man who stood up to speak at a funeral. He referred to the dates in the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that the first date, uh, first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. See, in a, in, in a purely humanistic view, uh, there's no potential for a, a life-giving impact of an individual once they reach that date of their death. The, the impact they have has been realized. But that's not so within the kingdom of God. Jesus declared that he came to make all things new. Now, I think, in my mind, part of what fits within that category of all things new is death. That there's a new understanding of what death is. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 24 to 26 of our passage in John 12. 
He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever, uh, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, what Jesus is speaking about in the context of our passage, he's speaking with, to an agricultural society. You know, if you think of some of his other parables he told, it wasn't unusual for him to speak in farming terminology. We have the, the parable of the sower of the seeds, the farmer who's planting his seeds in the field, right? We, we have the passage where Jesus talks about uh, taking his yoke upon us. Sorry, yes, taking his yoke upon us and learning from him, and he'll give us rest. A yoke is something a farmer would use in the contours of his day. There's the parable that Jesus tells of the vineyard owner, right? Where he talks about raising up a harvest of grapes for, 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 for wine. See, teaching about the kingdom of God through the lenses of the life of a farmer was not uncommon. But there is something uniquely genius and uncommon about Jesus' teaching in this passage about the death of, of a, a grain of wheat, right? For there to be a harvest of wheat, a grain of wheat must die and be planted in the ground. The, the dead seed, which the, the farmer plants in the ground, bears the fruit of a harvest beyond measure. But so it is with Jesus' death that Jesus' death might bear the fruit of a harvest beyond all measure. This is what Paul meant in Romans when he said that Jesus was delivered up to death for our sins and raised to life again for our justification. Jesus's, by Jesus' wounds, we would be healed. The death of the seed planted in the ground would bear a harvest beyond measure of life for you and for me. See, Jesus' death is that seed which is planted in the ground, and that we might have life in God. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 20. Paul says that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, what I think Paul is saying is that Jesus has gone ahead of us in death as the pure and spotless lamb. He's the sacrifice without fault or blemish. He is, uh, his resurrection makes possible life but it also makes him the first fruits of the harvest of life. See, in the kingdom of God, death is not the end. In the kingdom of God, it's the beginning of a beautiful and bountiful harvest. Death is not the, the second date that's etched in a tombstone, which symbolizes the end of our productivity. It's the first date in the tombstone, where our life begins in Christ, and the harvest the harvest of life, the, the bountiful and beautiful harvest of life begins. It's born there 
in the death of Christ. And yet, many of us, many of us stop at celebrating being a part of the harvest. Many of us stop and say, yay, I'm a part of the family of God. We celebrate the fact that we've been redeemed from life and, and are by faith alive with Jesus. And then we, we so easily take the posture of, of having arrived in the family of God and then we walk our way over to the holy hot tub and relax for the remainder of our life. See, Jesus invites us to follow him. He, he doesn't invite us to relax in the hot tub. Resting in Jesus and relaxing in a holy hot tub are two very different things. Christianity is not a religion that is meant to serve us. Christianity is a lifestyle of following Jesus where we are invited to serve alongside him in his mission on this earth. See, Jesus isn't sitting still. He still has a mission to seek and to save the lost. He still has a mission to reach those who are hurting and broken, who are lost in this world who are longing to find the purpose for which they were created. Our world is filled with those kinds of people. People who are broken, who are lonely, who are in need of hearing about the love of God through Jesus Christ. And you know what? Jesus is sending, he's sending you and he's sending me as his followers to walk in the path of Jesus with him. Those who have witnessed God's love have been called to serve that love, to, to be vessels of that love where God's love can be given to us and flow through us out into the world. And so those who have witnessed firsthand the blessing of receiving God's love in Jesus are being sent out with that very same purpose and mission. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Jesus has died for all. He has been that seed, that grain of wheat, which has been killed and is dead and buried in the ground. And because he's died for all, we have then for, therefore all died. And, and, and he, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for, who for their sake died and was raised to life. See, you and I have a new purpose in Jesus, in, in following him. We serve a purpose alongside our Savior. It's the purpose of learning to die to ourselves so that a kingdom harvest might grow in its place. See, this world operates according to the law of preservation and advancement of the self, right? It's all about how can I do better, get more, advance in this world, achieve that American dream. But the kingdom of God operates according to the law of love that says greater love has no man than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. That is a pathway of death, a pathway of death that bears the fruit of life and love in the lives of those around us. See, the servant model of Jesus' life that he invites us to, to walk with him, to follow him in, is one of self-giving and dying. As followers of Jesus, we can't die the death he did and conquer death the way he did. That's an honor that's set apart for him and him only. 
But as followers, as his followers, we're called to walk a similar path. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told his followers that, that if anyone should follow him, they should lay down their life, they should deny themselves, lay down their uh, lives, and take up their cross and follow him, right? This cross is an instrument of death. Following Jesus down this path is where we say no to our own personal advancement, where, where we say no to our own personal accomplishments and say yes to the kingdom. This is the way Paul says it in Galatians 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We, we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for our own desires. But, but it requires putting to death certain parts of ourselves, certain things within us that are keeping us from saying yes to the kingdom, from, from seeing a harvest of life in us and through us to the world around us. My grandmother is a good example of, of this in my life. She always put others first. A anyone that, that knew her, anyone whose life she touched, felt her fierce love and her protection. They, they knew of her sacrificial love. See, she suffered more loss in this life than, than anyone I know, and yet she poured herself out always for others. I never once heard her complain about life and, and I don't think anyone would have blamed her for complaining. And yet when she passed away, when, when that second date was etched into her tombstone, what I heard was not the end of her fruitfulness, but the multiplication of a harvest of God's love and grace and faithfulness. See, I, I, I'm standing here before you today, or I'm sitting here before you today from my living room, because of her faith in Jesus and because of her willingness to serve alongside Jesus, to, to say yes to certain things dying within herself so that the kingdom of God might flourish through her and bring about a bountiful and beautiful harvest of life and love through her. I am a follower of Jesus today because of my grandmother's faith in Jesus, because of her willingness to die to herself, to take up her cross and follow him. So here comes the hard part for us this morning, church. What is it that you need to die to? What is it you need to die to today? What part of your passions and desires are getting in the way of God bearing the fruit of harvest in you and through you? Is it your pride? Is it fear? Is it selfishness? Is it anger? What about this? Is it possible that you're holding on to something this morning? You're, you're holding a grudge this morning that, that you need to die to, that you need to lay down, that you need to, uh, to put to death within you so that God could bring about a harvest through you, that he can communicate his love and grace and forgiveness through you. See, there's something that not needs to die in each and every one of us this morning, if you'll allow it. See, death is not the end in the kingdom of God, but the beginning of a beautiful and bountiful harvest. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for sending your son Jesus. But Lord, I ask for courage this morning. Because I believe that what you are asking of your followers is a very difficult thing. 
to put to death within us sin, selfishness, pride, anger, a self-righteousness, Lord. There are any number of examples of things within our lives that we need to put to death. And I don't know what that is within the lives of the people in this time of worship this morning, but you do. So Lord, I ask for the courage for people who have gathered here this morning to, to ask of you, Lord, search my heart, know my ways, and find if there be any evil way in me and lead me in the way of righteousness. Lord, lead us in the way of putting to death those things within us that are keeping us from being a part of a beautiful and bountiful, bountiful kingdom harvest. Lord, I know that Jesus is powerful enough to do this, and so I pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen.